We got a great show for you this week. Thank you so much for listening to The Green Majority. We're going to be talking to Mike D'Souza, one of my favorite journalists here in Canada. Been doing some amazing environmental journalism for many, many years now, and we get to speak to him today. I'm very excited. So uh, I won't take any more time before that interview other than to remind you, if you enjoy what we do and you'd like to see us have an even bigger listener base and more resources and maybe even hire someone which is uh, – helping to help uh, improve the content of the show uh, as well as help uh, promote the show. That is actually a real possibility soon if we get a few more members. So please consider signing up today to support The Green Majority. You can do that at either greenmajority.ca and click on the link or just go directly to patron, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash greenmajority to sign up. You can do that for as little as a dollar a month. Now enjoy the show. Welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm in studio as par usual with Stephen Hostetter. How are you doing today, Stephen? I'm quite well. How are you doing? Great. I'm pumped <laughs> because uh, I have a very short list of people that I consider uh, that I idolize to some degree, you mm-hmm. know, some to a varying degree. But I'm pretty picky. You know this. Oh, I do. There's two people that I've talked about, uh, Carl Sagan and, uh, and of, course, of course, Dr. James Hansen. I always tell that story. Uh, well, there's a third person who I think is is just an exceptional human being and is doing great work. And it is our pleasure today that I'm actually a bit giddy. I was just telling you uh, because we actually get to talk to him. So one of them is uh, one of the best environmental journalists in the country. No reservations about that. Uh, statement whatsoever. Uh, Mike D'Souza, who is a former Post Media, Reuters, Toronto Star journalist, uh, currently working for the National Observer, who has just been uh, absolutely running a wrecking ball through the uh, snooze regular media uh, <laughs> and and just kicking up dust in the best possible way, standing up for citizens and, and exposing uh, things that citizens need to know about. I'll stop short of calling it corruption in all cases, but in some cases there was definitely uh, the appearance of corruption. Um, but he is just doing an exceptional job and it is my pleasure today to speak to him uh and it, i also say that by way of disclosure that this is not a neutral interview because i think mike's great uh so there we go you're not Some, gonna you're not gonna you're not gonna really try to try to hardball in there no hmm. no when when i, I and, the, and i say that so that people trust me when i say that i don't have a bias in this case i have a complete bias let's just put that right up uh, right up front i think mike's great we're gonna get to talk to mike in about 15 minutes but our guide for that 15 minutes is going to be you. Stefan, take it away. That is true. Uh, so I get to begin the show with an update from last week. Uh, it's not uh, It's not too common. Uh, well, every once in a while, we got to break a couple news stories last week, and we came so close for this one, I feel like. <laughs> uh, it was uh, you know, it was Saturday morning when this was announced, and so we would have had to, you know, we'd have the first 24-hour show. Uh, we decided not to do that. Uh, <laughs> by, by decided, I mean CAUT would never let us do that. Um, but anyways, uh, so the, the news is that actually, so last week, week we reported on the HFCs, CFCs, uh, all the different types of uh, fluorocarbons, uh, and specifically HFCs is hydrofluorocarbons. Um, uh, There was a big talk going on in, oh man, oh. Are you having an Aleppo moment? I'm having an Aleppo moment. And so, <laughs> actually, I believe it's, I want to say Rwanda. Where the no, it was. Happened. You're right. It was nice. Rwanda, yeah. Well, then I'm not having an Aleppo moment. Yeah. I'm having a Rwanda moment, which is why I'm <laughs> right uh, about where the talks are happening. Um, so, the talks are happening there. It's with almost 200 nations. We're trying to dis- 
to have a conversation about reducing HFCs. Uh, now, the thing about HFCs, of course, is that they are about 10,000 times more uh, effective at trapping heat in the atmosphere than carbon. Uh, and so any reduction of any HFCs is, uh, is monumentally uh, more effective at, uh, at you know, limiting climate change than, than, than carbon. Now, of course, there's way less of these, uh, but that's, that's how this works, right? Uh, and so what's interesting is this one talk, so they, well, the, great, the good news, I've buried the lead here, but the good news uh, is that they've come up to an agreement to actually, uh, to actually limit and slowly reduce and effectively, by the end of this, uh, eliminate uh, HFCs from, uh, from our ecosystem. Uh, that includes it's a, it's a long it's a, it's a it's a long process. It doesn't actually begin until 2019, uh, and then uh, different. And then there's a sort of a scaling up of actions from different from different places. Uh, so the, the basically the, the the Western nations who are get to start 2019 uh, to start reducing HFCs in their refrigerators and AC units by 2024. Uh, China and 100 developing countries uh, come on board with that, uh, and then a small group of countries, including India and Pakistan and some Gulf states. Uh, have don't don't start reducing them until until 2028 uh, because their economy saying their economies need more time to grow. Uh, but the, you know the, you know, that's, that seems like a long way off. But it should be noted that's actually three years earlier than uh, that India uh, the, actually had proposed. So it's everyone sort of gave a little bit, uh, and it seems like everyone's happy. It's one of these things where where everyone seems relatively satisfied with this deal, uh, which is fantastic. Uh, you know, the, you know, India's chief chief delegate came out and, and supported it. Uh, even the small island nations, which were you know, which 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 are usually the ones that are sort of you know, because they're the ones most at risk, usually come out and, and quite and quite against it, um, or, or usually are always pushing for more and more action because you know they're the first impa- impacted. Uh, and so this and so this conversation, there was a group of of, of these small island nations and some African uh, nations as well. Uh, that were that were sort of joining forces to be the to be the really we need to reduce HFCs push, um, and you know and and they're and they're you know there's, it's not exactly uh, the exact quote here from uh, Matlin Zakaris, uh, the minister in assistance to the president of the Marshall Islands, uh, said it may not be entirely what the islands wanted, but it's a good deal. Which you know at, at this point, as far as national as far as international policies go, uh, that's pretty good. Uh, not to mention this one's binding. It's actually legally binding, unlike the Paris Accord. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think just yeah, and I think I think it's important that you put that note on there. That there that that we that taken into the account the fact that this is a you know international agreement that is law you know is that is bound by law. Um, that no one has ever said we got everything we want uh, unless we're talking about trade deals, <laughs> right? Like so, yeah. like that's that's the, I I think that's a very minor qualifier. Um, I think that's to be expected. I don't think a deal could be expected where uh, those who are the most risk averse, i.e., those who are the most at risk, i.e., the small island nations, were going to say yes, we got absolutely everything we got. I don't think that was a reasonable goal. So yes, I think we can go ahead and just call this a win. Yeah, and and you know if if, if you have both the people being most impacted on one side, like either the government, like India. And the people who are, uh, you know, who obviously try to delay this as much as possible, okay, okay with it. And the island nations who would be most impacted by the by the lack of action, okay with it. It's a win, everyone. We are we're going to own this win and celebrate it. Uh, so much so that uh, Durwood Zayelk. Zy- uh, the president of the Institute for Govern- Governance and Sustainable Development uh, came out and said, this is apparently, in his words, uh, the largest temperature reduction ever achieved by a single agreement. So, good news. Uh, you know, does this does this stop our need to contain carbon? No, but can we at least be happy that international talks and look, diplomacy works, people. 
uh, international dogs actually might receive might, this might be a success. Um, interestingly, in the article, uh, there was no mention of actually what we would be replacing HFCs with. Uh, so I don't know whether or not there's a, an attempt to contain this, to contain them better, or if they're actually phasing them out of the usage. Mm. Uh, but I'm sure if I, I you could probably look in further and actually find what the next step is there. Well, and I, what I think was really interesting about that is that you know I mean we essentially got okay it's on it's on one minor component of the issue that relates to climate change. But what's really interesting was that I mean you could take this and it's very it's very easy to re, you know listen to what Stefan just said or read the article and go blah 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 okay whatever uh, yeah deal blah blah no 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 but like here's here's the thing that you should be paying attention for uh, is that basically what was just described was a we have a problem we don't necessarily have an agreement on what the solution is but we have an agreement on a binding thing that requires a solution. And we're going to let, you know, a combination of market forces and further legislation and local legislation um, to, you know, worry about the details. We're going to start with the principle that at the at the end of the day, this must be met. How we meet it will then be worked out based on the fact that you now have to meet it. That's an exact model for what we've been asking for for the macro problem, which is climate change. And everyone says that's impossible. Yeah. Well, it, Congratulations, you just proved that that's not the case. Well, it is, you know, it points like it's, to, it's a model for how we need to approach the other problem. And it's just really funny that you can get it on a smaller part of it. But then when you take the exact same model to the larger problem, people go, oh, that's crazy. Yeah. Well, and, 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 and it, it's, it comes from the fact that when you're looking, you know, HFCs, while while a major part of one particularly small industry, uh, although I, an ironic industry given that it's coolant, uh, you know, it's AC and refrigerators that these are most likely commonly used in, uh, which, you know, climate change will make you need more of. Uh, I, I'm actually seeing Ezra Levant's headline right now. Uh, conspiracy exposed. Look at this. <laughs> if the climate change is real, why would you try to be banning coolants? Gotcha, hippies. <laughs> You know what? I have no response to that. Uh, I will, I'll give in. Um, in so moving to the next uh, next uh, topic of news, uh, less fun story, uh, and we don't cover these too often. I feel like we sort of we sort of for a while we are covering every we are trying to cover most oil spills, and then we realize that's basically impossible, uh, and so we gave up. Uh, but this is particularly of interest. Uh, it's the it is the diesel spill uh, that's falling that's that's off the uh, the BC coast, and uh, the attempts to sort of actually keep it within its boundaries um, are it has been has been failing. Uh, they've been finding sort of oil outside of the containment areas, uh, and they're you know it's just you know it's an ongoing effort uh, as all of these things are, and yet another reminder uh, that. You know, you can say that nothing. You can say that it's safe until a tanker off the BC coast, uh, you know, goes down, and then suddenly you have you have oil in your in your water. And you know, the it's this it's 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 a funny timing given the amount of ramping up of efforts to get a pipeline that's going to go out to BC as that's ramping up. Like the fact, and that's you know, largely going to very very likely will increase the amount of tankers needed to go to the BC coast that a tanker carrying oil goes down. Um, and spills, uh, spills ten. Uh, it was a ten thousand ton tanker, um, and you know it's one of those things where it's like you can keep saying it's mostly safe, but if you run ten thousand tankers through there, even if it's point one percent safe, like even if only point one percent of all tankers go, you know, will, will spill any oil. If you run ten thousand tankers through a space, that means there will be oil on those shores eventually. Well, and th- and that's one of those things I want to. I have two quick comments about that. Actually, yeah. the, one of the things I want to talk to Mike about is, um, I mean, the, getting. I mean, I've done a sort of very armchair look at. We did a show uh, a few weeks ago, and and probably, I mean, you could probably rename subtitle one out of 
of every four of our shows you know the the true cost of oil yeah. uh, but i it was explicitly the title of the show a few <laughs> weeks ago and this is me doing sort of armchair napkin math on okay well you think it's this and so we're being told it has this value but really uh, i know that's not true i don't know what the true number is because i don't have you know enough money to go into a proper research project here um uh, but i can tell you that the number you're being told is wrong because it doesn't account for this 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 right and so one of the things that i'm going to talk to mike about was is is about that very thing about the true cost of oil and one of the things that never gets fed into the price of the gas pump uh, or how valuable this is for canada as an industry is the fact that regardless as to whether or not the oil goes into your gas tank or a gas tank in china or a gas tank in in wherever uh is the fact that if it spills here we pay for it and sure the company might pay for part of it in many cases they pay for some of it but not very much of it in a, in several cases and in, I, I don't have the exact number uh but it's, it's quite hard to look up you might be shocked to find out uh but in many cases the canadian public has paid for almost all of a disaster spill uh or it simply isn't dealt with at the time and then we get a secondary effect so something like the mount poly disaster that poisons a bunch of water that kills a bunch of fil- uh, fish uh and then kills an industry or perhaps takes the food source away from a first nations group that now needs to apply for more funding from the government so like these are all knocked out offense that are never ever calculated into the cost of oil right so if you took every the price of every single subsidy added that to the price of every single oil spill that the canadian public had to pay for added that to all of the knockdown effects all the downstream effects there's no chance this makes us any money and and if i'm wrong then great i'd like somebody who's an advocate for the oil industry to go and do that math show me that i'm wrong but i i i would put every dollar that i have which i admit is not much I can I can maybe spare about seven fifty, uh, but I will $7. put it dollars and fifty cents. I will put it down right. uh, as a statement that there is not a chance that this is a good deal for us when you actually do that math. Hmm. And the thing is, and that's what's so shocking about it is that even the math. I mean, we covered a few weeks ago. Even the math that's covered in the in the mainstream media, uh, in in traditional news sources, we're even saying yeah, it's pretty close. And those pretty close numbers they're talking about about like this is arguably you know there's a reason why companies are on the fence about their investments and all this stuff. None of those numbers taken into account anything I just said. So I'm I'm pretty safe in being certain that this is a losing proposition for us if somebody actually did the actual math. Well, and like this is the thing this this difficulty of having this kind of conversation is is what uh, is what I struggle with all the time, uh, which is that when you when you you the, the, when you want to have an argument or a conversation with someone, you both have to have a similar premise. Uh, and if the premise that science is telling us is that no new oil infrastructure can go in, can be created because we already have reserves that cover that blow past our carbon budget, I I struggle to have a conversation with anybody else who doesn't accept that one premise. You know, I, I, like well, I can change my premise, but if that's the premise science is demanding, how do you have that conversation? How do you expand this? How do you expand your 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 tent when when the central point that you are trying that you that 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 ba- that, that science has shown is true is being rejected by the rest of the people who are who are who are who are in this conversation well and my favorite thing like and one of the other articles i flagged for this week was about how uh you know denial uh, you know official denialists like denialist groups and and denialist funding groups are sort of finally starting to uh to kind of waver in their impact and their and they're more and more of the public and more of more even governments and stuff even governments that really want to believe that it's true are either less willing to less able to or just don't believe this stuff anymore but the remaining stuff it's 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 almost it's the i have the exact opinion about it that i do about donald trump which is that it would be hilarious if it wasn't so freaking terrifying Mm. um which is that like every single thing look look, oh look climate change is real basically throw out what the all these experts are telling you what's your argument as to why we shouldn't trust them and all they do is they cherry pick quotes from those very scientists 
So even if we throw out the idea that they're being completely dishonest in their arguing tactics, which is taking data out of its context and presenting it in a completely misleading light, is that your source material is still the scientists that you said <laughs> were not trustworthy. Like, how, who is that stupid? And I, I don't think it's stupidity. I think it's that people just really aren't being paying attention combined with how many people want it to be true. They want it to be not true is the answer. But it's really hard to look at that and not think that most people are complete idiots, well, even it, though that isn't the case. Right. Well, that, well that's, the, that's the central problem with, with the new form of denialism that we see. Like, the, the new denialism <coughs> isn't actually saying that, that climate change isn't real. The new form of denialism is saying climate change is real, but then not doing anything about the, it. The so-called lukewarmers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay, fine. Or, or, <laughs> or not even lukewarmers, but like if right at this current moment, the number of people who just sort of accept climate change is a real thing, uh, but don't, but then, but then are, are don't agree about the timelines. Like that, that's the same thing. It's not useful to you know if if you if your plan to, to address climate change would get us to carbon neutral by twenty by 2200 you might as well be denying it it doesn't actually change anything it just makes it it makes it harder for those of us who are actually trying to push forward real policy on the correct timelines like as soon as you start arguing timelines like, like the difficulty we already face getting getting make climate change salient like you know you just men, you mentioned Donald Trump there were four debates Three presidential, one vice presidential. Not a single. The closest you got to a question about climate change was a question from a weird man in a red sweater uh, <laughs> who asked uh, who who asked about how you could how would how you would be able to f you know be more environmentally friendly while preserving jobs for people working in fossil fuels. And that's the closest to a question. And that wasn't from the moderator. The moderator never asked a question about this. Yeah, that was a town hall. Yeah. yeah. So like at this point, you're looking at. How like we're already struggling to get this issue to be in any way salient, like to have anyone talk about it. Like the fact that four, th 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 four debate moderators all chose questions and none of them decided to ask one question about climate change, and then to switch that from not only having to ask questions, do you believe in it, to what are the timelines you want to have to act on it, is an, an is, is a massive step to even have this conversation. Um, and what's like what's ridiculous, of course, is that like everyone's uh, is now clearly agreeing to what's happening. The fact that we've now had two major worldwide agreements in the last year to to fight climate change, uh, clearly the world accepts it's happening, uh, and yet our discourse still acts as if it's not. And we're going to have to figure out some way to deal with this. Yeah. And while we're making uh, – before we go to our first music break and come back and talk to Mike D'Souza, I, I can't resist making a one more Trump comparison. <laughs> now, now that I'm significantly less terrified about him actually becoming president, I feel, yeah. like, I, I feel like we have a safe space now <laughs> to, to, to have some more fun. We have three weeks where he's uh, – bo both we have to – we can still pay attention to him but also be less scared that he might become president. Yeah. Now, now I don't I, – I, I want to make sure that when I say this, I don't mean this in a, in, a, in a jesting way and that I'm not sort of trying to make light of a very serious conversation. I mean this is an extremely serious comparison. Um, uh, just so that nobody misunderstands that I'm making light of something quite serious. But I mean, this is like when, you know, people were saying, oh, Trump didn't say those comments about, you know, sexually assaulting women uh, with reference to the, well, climate change isn't happening. Right. And now, like, this is how stupid and how hideous you are for saying, okay, it's true, but, we, you know, okay, it's all real, but we don't need to do anything about it. Is you're essentially, the, you're the equivalent of people like Ben Carson who are saying, yeah, okay, he did do that stuff or he did say that stuff, but it's not really a big deal. Yeah. That's how hideous you sound. That's how hideous you look. And that's how stupid you look, just as stupid as Ben Carson, because <laughs> uh, I'm sure any of those people are listening. But we're going to come back and talk to somebody who's, uh, who's, who I would say is much more of an actual journalist than we are. Oh, I consider yeah. us commentators. Um, you know, some people have said, we, well, you're technically still journalists. Okay, fine. But uh, 
an actual real bona fide journalist would be <laughs> with us. A real live journalist, <laughs> yay! <laughs> a real live journalist could come on in just a, in just a minute. So, uh, and as I did say, uh, I got surprised again this week. You may, may have noticed I haven't thrown to Alex yet. Uh, we don't have a tech this week, and unfortunately, the first casualty of us not having a tech other than me is that we're going to have to listen to dance music. So here comes uh, <laughs> Ghosts and Stuff with Dead Mouse. If you have a better suggestion for music you would like to hear, tweet at Stefan right now. For yeah. our second and final music break, because I still haven't picked it, uh, you can do so. That's at Steho underscore, and yeah. you can tweet him. And if not, Stefan will make up the second music break. So All right, done. We'll be right back with Mike D'Souza. Here's some Dead Mouse. All right, you are back. That was, as I said, some Dead Mouse. If you loved it, you're welcome. If not, tweet Stefan right now at Steho underscore uh, to get a uh, better selection on our next music break. But without wasting any more time, let's just confirm because this is the first time I've actually done my own phone call. Mike D'Souza, are you there? I'm here. How are you? Nice. I nailed it. Good. I'm just thrilled I got you on the phone. Let's let's deal with that first. So, uh, just as a brief bit of context, so Mike D'Souza, you have been a journalist for quite some time. I've been following you as as a as a as a unwitting contributor to our show uh, uh, through your environmental career, through when you were working at Post Media, and uh, probably not as much uh, for, with your stint at the Toronto Star, but. Uh, it was really funny because it, immediately when I started reading your articles years and years and years ago, and we had you on the show maybe like four years ago, um, I remember the first few times I read some of your articles and it was the, the content was so different than what I was reading uh, on, the same, for, on the same website from another journalist on the same website that I remember somewhat jokingly thinking to myself, there's got to be a clock ticking on this guy because <laughs> you just seemed so much more... I hesitate to use the word activist, but you just seemed so much more concerned with a very pointed form of investigative journalism that that to me stood out. It was quite obvious to see that you were you were a different breed than the other people there. Uh, yeah, and then well, so when you left, yeah. I was quite shocked. So tell us a little bit about that story. I, I, I would say there's a clock ticking on all journalists right now, uh, given the state of the media. What you know might make me different. I mean, I, I wouldn't use the word activist, but what's important to me is is asking tough questions all the time, um, not accepting uh, standard lines from from anyone, whether it be in government or industry. If they don't want to answer a question, I'm going to ask it again until until they actually answer. And I think most people know that about me. But I know that that I, um, you know, even if I if I don't get that answer initially, I will dig as hard as I can to get those answers. But that's what's important to me as a journalist. I think there are a lot of other journalists that do approach um, that do approach their job in this way but given the state of the media the the, the cuts that have happened uh, you know widespread across many different media outlets there's fewer and fewer journalists that are able to dedicate that kind of time to do this type of work and you know right now I'm, I'm with National Observer you know we're dedicated to that and I'm quite happy that uh, that I have this opportunity right now to pursue this uh, type of investigative journalism. So before we get a little bit into specifically why we asked to be on the show today, which was your the relationship with the post media now several years on, um, I wanted to just ask for the sake of context. There's been a number of stories about uh, journalists covering environmental stories. I have a couple here flagged. One was Amy Goodman, who was initially charged with criminal trespass uh, and then was charged with uh, something having to do with inciting a riot or, or participating in a riot. That we just found out this week. That charge has been uh, dropped. Uh, but there's another uh, reporter uh, who's uh, contributing on a uh, documentary uh, with Josh Fox, uh, uh, Dia Schlossberg as well, who's uh, currently still uh, facing charges as well. What is going on? Is it, what's what's going on? I'll leave it there. <laughs> um, that's, 
a really good question. Um, there, I think in, in, in a lot of these cases, some of the work that journalists are doing is exposing inconvenient facts or, or phenomena or, or issues that some powerful people don't want to see brought to light, and they're not comfortable with that, so, so there's, there's an aggressive reaction. Um, and, and I guess it's a bit disproportionate. It's, uh, it's unusual whenever, whenever you see someone who is trying to suppress, uh, freedom of speech, who is trying to suppress journalists from doing their jobs. Uh, we should never stand for that. It's not, you know, we, we don't live in North Korea. We don't live in the former Soviet Union. Um, we, we live in North America in the Western world and in democracies. Uh, so I think it's important for journalists to stand up for their right to ask questions, their right to report and provide the public with information that the public needs to make good decisions, uh, to provide decision makers with, with the evidence they need to make good decisions. And, uh, you know, in the same way, just to help society as a whole make progress. And, and find uh, find the right ways to to go forward and uh, make society better. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's uh, that's one of the reasons I I couched my my activist at the beginning, and I, I agree with you that you're not. But I, the reason I I chose to use that word, and and I agree again, I agree with you that you aren't. But it is how the mainstream media is essentially framing anybody. I would say that it is is doing any sort of journalism that doesn't toe that line, that doesn't go, uh, okay, well. You know, we have to be concerned about our advertisers or, or whatever it might be, and that it, activist is simply being used as a uh, as an attempt to smear journalists who aren't sort of towing that line of hey, okay, at the end of the day, we have to be nice to all these folks because you know because they're the rich and powerful or whatever. Well, I mean, people can uh, you know people are free to criticize you know in the same way that that journalists should be free to to pursue investigations of public interest. People are free to criticize, and, and, and you know, if they want to, if they want to put labels on people, that's their choice. Um, you know, I hope that the public is smart enough to recognize when uh, when someone is crossing a line, and is you know, instead of looking at the issue, they're trying to find a distraction to avoid talking about the issue. Um, you know, I try to stay focused, and, and, and the rest, you know, with along with my colleagues at National Observer, we try to stay focused on, on the issues, and we don't want to get distracted. I mean, you know, maybe we did get a bit distracted by having to respond to some of these issues ourselves in the past couple of weeks, but we're trying to stay focused on the important work that we're doing. And so let's lead the, take that as a little bit of a lead into the National Observer story uh, and, and your sort of story. There was, there was two articles particular that flagged this issue recently. One of them was put out by uh, the uh, person who runs the newspaper as well, Linda Solomon Wood, uh, talking about a, another journalist who works for National Observer uh, going after the uh, the, uh, the Irving family. Uh, mm-hmm. While well, going after, I mean, you know, doing journalism well, about and their response. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, do I still have you? Yes. 
Yeah, sorry, I just heard a, a bit of a buzz there. Um, and your question about well, and and just how this sort of ties to, yeah. I mean, the fact that that anybody who does this isn't simply a matter of you know other counter arguments being put out in the mainstream media. I mean, these people are sort of contacting you know whether it's whether the whether the articles themselves are correct or not. The idea that someone would contact you and and basically threaten you and say, hey, don't write that article because I don't like it. Um, I, I just I think that a lot of people think that that's not that that stuff doesn't really happen, but it does. Well, to to a certain extent, I mean, there's you know I've been working in the media for more than fifteen years now, and and you will get feedback on on positive and negative stories. Um, there are different levels of what happens. Um, you know, sometimes you might have a more, I mean, different people have different approaches to media relations. Some, some are more friendly and try to spin uh, reporters, and others take a more aggressive approach. Uh, so, for you know, for example, I think it was well known that in, in the past decade in Ottawa, uh, I guess up until November 2015, there was a different government in Ottawa that took a very aggressive approach to media relations, where it would publicly attack a journalist. And behind the scenes, it would be placing calls, you know, to high levels of different media organizations whenever there was a journalist that they didn't like. So, yes, that does happen. Um, I guess it's part of a job. And, you know, part of it, part of it is, is reasonable. Part of it is if, if, if there's a journalist out there that, that crosses a line or that goes too far or that is not being fair, then certainly people have a right to criticize and, and, and ask questions about what that journalist is doing. And, and, you know, if they've made mistakes, if they're not acting in a responsible way. Um, but on the other hand, if the journalist is doing his or her job, and the end goal is to bully and intimidate. Well, we have to stand, we have to speak up about that, and and we have to denounce it, and we have to fight back. All right. Well, speaking of fighting uh, back, I'd like to take this opportunity now that we've sort of set the stage to uh, to retell part of the story. You wrote a uh, a little longer than uh, than normal, uh, but uh, I think worth every uh, portion or very very important for context. Uh, article about uh, what's been happening now uh, with specifically with the article by Vivian uh, Krauss, uh titled "The Cash Pipeline Opposing Canadian Oil Pipelines." Uh, can you recount uh, that story for us uh, briefly? Yeah, so so there's uh, an opinion piece that was published in in the Financial Post uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, that talked about the coverage that National Observer did on the Energy East pipeline hearings, the coverage we did that led to the adjournment of the hearings that exposed a potential conflict of interest uh, that went up to the the highest levels of the National Energy Board, uh, including touching the chief executive, who was forced to recuse himself from any dealings with uh, with Energy East, and then that forced all the panel members on 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 that uh, as part of that hearing process to recuse themselves as well. So she decided to write a piece that was funding that National Observer had received before I joined the publication. And we felt she went about this piece in an irresponsible way. Uh, she didn't tell us that she was going to be writing a piece. She didn't tell us that she was going to be writing a piece for the National Post. Uh, and when we offered or when I offered to answer her questions, she didn't want to take that opportunity and preferred instead to write 
that I hadn't answered questions. So all those things we felt was were uh, irresponsible, uh, reflected uh, or demonstrated a very, very poor judgment on the part of the editorial people at the National or Financial Post. Um, it was irresponsible, pure and simple. And, uh, you know, I thought, it, I thought it was disgraceful that this kind of, uh, this kind of piece was portrayed as, as fair and responsible journalism and, and made, it, made to, made to look like a, like a news piece that suggested that, um, that any reporting we're doing is linked to funding. Um, so that was the piece. And we chose to react and defend ourselves. And, uh, and I guess you've seen both pieces by now and, uh, we'll see what happens from here. Um, we filed a, a complaint with the press council, uh, the, the, the national news media council to have it look at this issue and, uh, we'll, we'll see how they review and what they decide. Well, and one of the things that I, that really stood out for me, because I, I also read the, the linked article uh, that Vivian wrote, and one of the things that really stood out for me was, yeah, I mean, the, the entire thing was in an extremely long, um, hey, basically don't trust this journalist and, and be very suspicious of the publication for which he's working, uh, because look where they're getting their funding. Now, there's a whole bunch of problems with that, and you, I'll just leave, I'll just say that if you want to sort of learn more about the details about why that was incredibly misleading, um, just to please to, to read the article, I'll, I'll link to it in the show post. The part I wanted to ask you about, though, was uh, was the idea that I mean, she seemed to be saying that, you know, uh, you know, don't trust this journalist because, you know, they get some money from here. Um, and and in my position, and maybe I don't maybe you don't agree with me, but to me, like where somebody gets their money from is only uh, relevant if there's something wrong with what they're saying and you're trying to find out why. Right. So if we have uh, somebody who's lying and I say, OK, well, these are easily refutable lies. Why would they do that? Are they simply wrong or, or is there something else at play here? Then you sort of look up, oh, I see this person's getting millions of dollars from the oil industry. They're writing a whole bunch of easily refutable to someone who does their homework. Uh, the comments about, you know, pro oil. Therefore, this this explains why they've been so, you know, in, bad essentially their job just to make it really simple uh then i think it's relevant but i mean if if donald trump or whoever you know writes a hit piece and there or somebody writes a hit piece in it and it you know is attacking hillary clinton but everything in it is true i don't think the fact that the money came from donald trump is relevant do you uh, well you know funding funding can have an influence um i think i think in in in, in a lot of cases it can I think, you know, disclosure is good. I mean, in a lot of cases, but, um, you know, in terms of the media, uh, media outlets have been getting advertising dollars from a wide variety of different advertisers, corporations. Um, this has been going on for decades and I don't know if, if, if we need to start disclosing more of this or not, but I think media outlets have clear uh, or should have clear policies that separate the money that's coming in from the editorial decisions that are made. That's what we do at National Observer. Um, if, if, if we have any arrangements with, um, with a foundation, um, there, there is, there is an explicit agreement that says that we retain all editorial control. There's no direction. Um, but, Yep, there there can be problems with with some of these funding sources. I think at times uh, when when it comes to a think tank um, that is promoting denial of climate change science, uh, 
Um, if we trace back that it's getting funding from one particular corporation that has financial interest in doing this, well, I think that can be interesting to, to for, for people to know. Mm. Um, so, I mean, you know, there's, there's a bunch of different ways to, to look at this, but um, at the end of the day, I mean, looking at the issues, focusing on the issues and the substance of issues is, is you know, the most important thing to do. A secondary thing is looking at the sources and what's driving things. Um, but, you know, looking at it in a balanced way, in a responsible way, is what's key here. And unfortunately, this isn't always the case in terms of, you know, the stories we see about about funding sources and, and links to messages. Uh, unfortunately, we are uh, out of time, uh, Mike, but I just wanted to take one last uh, comment from you uh, about the idea that, I mean, it could be very easily what I'm about to say could be very easily mistaken for just sort of a, a pale pitch for like, hey, these guys are great. Give them money. But like, really from a f- from a point of view, like the, the mainstream media, as you said at the very beginning of the interview, the the, the traditional media is is just bleeding money. Uh, they're you know cutting jobs everywhere. All the major newspapers are, are going. And, and there's a numbers of reason for that. We've talked about it before. There, we don't anywhere near have enough time to get into why that is but the reality is is that they are and what's unfortunately happening is that even though a lot of these traditional media sources uh are do have a lot of problems and i think their motives can be very suspect and 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 all of that stuff that they they do produce a lot of primary reporting right and so Mm -hmm. if they aren't doing it uh we need people like you to do it or if people don't like you or they don't like us uh, here at the green majority fine somebody else to do it but like somebody needs to do it and so if we're in agreement uh and i'm talking to listeners here that that the um that the traditional media is not serving its intended purpose, which is, you know, keeping a check on power to inform individuals so that we as citizens can make informed decisions about our government and about our life. Mm-hmm. Um, then we have to be willing to that we have somebody has to pay for it. And if you want the advertisers to pay for it and and thereby have their interest protected, then great, you know, keep buying the National Post. But if you want your interest protected, whether it's, you know, Mike D'Souza, National Observer, us or, you know, Rebel Radio or whoever it is that you like, uh, I think people just have to get used to the idea that even if it's a couple bucks a month, wherever that money goes, that you're going to have to just be willing to if you if you're not paying for it someone else will and and i think that people just need to get in, used to that idea of the, if they want to have a people journalists out there looking out for their interests they're going to have to be willing to cough up a little bit of money for it yep that's a good point i think you know people should be should be supporting uh organizations like like uh you know or your show at the green majority um i think people should uh seriously think about subscribing and paying i mean people pay thirty, forty, fifty dollars a month for, for a smartphone, maybe seventy, eighty dollars for internet. Well, maybe it's time they start thinking about what information comes through those services. Do they want to just keep paying for <laughs> uh, you know, a phone service and a smartphone that's blank? What what content will they read if they're they're if they're not supporting journalism? So I would agree with what you said. Please, please support journalism, and uh, and and we all we need everyone to start stepping forward and, and helping. Yeah, if you just bought a new iPhone to read National Post articles, you're uh, you're, you're 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 wasting your money. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been really my pleasure, uh, Mike, to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. Have a great day. All right. So we'll be back here on The Green Majority in just a minute. That was Mike D'Souza, one of my uh, – not one of my – my favorite Canadian journalist uh, outside of Stefan, obviously, Uh, (laughs) here on The Green Majority. We're going to be right back. Uh, We do have a listener – 
That's how you know it's my first time taking a phone call. Uh, we do have a uh, listener-requested song now. We're going to be listening to The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 AM, possibly on our podcast, which has a bonus show coming up uh, as well at the end of the program, and on our friends over at Rebel. Uh, Rebel. <laughs> that was a good one. Rebel.ca, not to be confused with Rebel, uh, coming up in just a minute. This is The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. We'll be right back here on CIUT. All right, you're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. That was uh, Mike D'Souza you we just finished uh, speaking to before the music break. And uh, we are going to now talk a little bit more about journalism and a couple of more news stories. But I just, uh, you know, as, as, a, as an attempt to resist talking about it on every show, we're going to take mm-hmm. this opportunity to just sort of make this a very journalism-focused episode. So, Stefan, I didn't give you a chance to jump in on the interview. Did you have any follow-up comments? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's – I think – it's interesting talking to anyone who's really trying to actually make a living in this field. I think that's the. I think that's the. That's the perhaps the most remarkable thing about what National Observer is trying to do. Uh, you know, forget forget anything else, but just trying to actually survive and and make it your life. Like you know, what we spent a year trying to do that and eventually gave up and got real jobs. Yeah, like it's a it's a it's a very difficult field, especially right now. And I think it's what's interesting is is the amount of effort currently going into all the different. The different looks and solutions to what new the new version of, of journalism is. You know, everyone sort of talks disdainfully of sort of the, the the old way of doing journalism, whether it's you know buy my newspaper or or care about my app, um, and, uh, and 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 so when you look at sort of the numbers across, especially Canada, some of the numbers across Canada are shocking. Uh, like the percentage of of uh, of Canadian media owned by one or two companies wouldn't be allowed if it was anything but media. You know, you, if 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 ninety five or something, it's something ridiculous. Percentage of newspapers are all owned by Post Media. So if if ninety five percent of you know of 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 all cell phone towers were owned by were owned by one company, we would we and we do we they actually are. do yeah and we, <laughs> and we actually force uh, we break up the monopoly we force we force the that monopoly monopoly broken up and yet and yet journalism because it's you know it, it doesn't count in that way, um, and so you're looking at this. You know, and what like you know, every every couple of weeks, I feel like there's a new story about the number of journalism being cut or or being moved in a different way, uh, and so like. It's a it's a fascinating place to be in right now. You know, yeah. uh, uh, similarly, actually, journalism is similar to sort of a similar, you know. Uh, Situation as the world is to some extent, which mm-hmm. is that it's reach it's getting to a crisis point, whether it's climate change or or or, or trying to find how to make money on in journalism, and be in that in that in that sort of urgency is 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 creating all these fascinatingly different attempts to make it work. Right, uh, and you look at the De Correspond or um, or some of the other stuff coming out of. For some reason, I, I think it's Denmark from De Correspond. It was a Holland. Uh, one of those, this one country, I think it's Holland, has like three of the most innovative types of doing news. All came out of it at the same time. It's like they were just like, we'll figure this out, guys, and then export it other places. <sighs> and so some of the solutions you're seeing there are, are fascinating. But it's 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 it hasn't happened yet here. And I think we're I think we're on the I think we're on the verge of really trying to figure out and trying to understand what Canadian media looks like going forward well and back uh you know and and that's currently not uh where we're at right now but back when the intention was okay throw everything at trying to make this a thing that we do and then i realized that was really hard to do when we won't take anyone's money um but you know back when as you were saying you know a little while ago a couple years ago when we were like okay let's try and make this thing um 
as as like a full time all the time thing. Oh, one of the things that occurred to me was like, okay, good. I remember covering a story, or, or I read the story anyway, about how I think it was it was either Greenland or Iceland. I'm pretty sure it was Iceland. Uh, basically, passed the most progressive uh, journalism uh, protection laws in the world. Uh, they they basically said that uh, uh, I, I don't remember it in its in explicit detail. I'm just going from memory here, but uh, they they passed something essentially that aside from a bunch of other protections for whistleblowers, they also s- said that uh, you know if if someone uh, wants to get into our country or is in our country uh, as a journalist and they are being sought as extradition for something related to their journalism, that, that this excuses us from our extradition treaties and that we will refuse to extradite them. So basically, it's like if you're a journalist and you're pissing people off, uh, come to Iceland. Mm-hmm. Um and I was like, okay, backup plan solidified. We are now, backup plan is now moved to Iceland. Um, <laughs> but I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, and sort of this, the whole state here is that, is that you know, the traditional media is in the, in the middle of cannibalizing itself uh, because, you know, and one of the things that I covered that I had flagged for this week was another more recent 20% uh, cut to post media. Post media, keep, just to remind everybody, despite all these losses and despite their, their massive, massive losses and the fact that they're, they're in crazy debt versus their income, they're firing people left, right, and center. Uh, there's a whole bunch of employees that have an option to either have pay cuts or sort of take a, you know, phase you out of having a job uh, deal that they just offered recently. Is that this these companies and or this company in particular still had the power a year ago, uh, a little over a year ago, uh, to put pro conservative ads on the front of 96 percent or something like that of the newspapers across the entire country, um, and. I mean, it's it's no wonder, you know, we're, we're looking at this sort of anti-intellectual thing when it comes to like Trump and when it comes to Brexit and this whole like, hey, well, you guys have been telling us, you know, all the answers for a really long time and you've been getting it wrong because you keep telling me you're going to help me. And then what I feel is you, is being hurt. So it's sort of like, well, throw the bums out sort of mentality that people have, which is a reference to elections where, you know, unless things are really great or unless there's a the middle of a crisis that a lot of the time it doesn't matter who's actually at fault. The, the response of the populace is just to throw out whoever the sitting government is, whether or not they're actually responsible or the best suited to deal with the problem is irrelevant. Uh, it's just this sort of reaction to like, OK, get rid of them. And so what's the problem is, is that a bunch of people in power who have been lying to people for all this whole time or, or you know, being creative with the truth, let's say, um, to benefit themselves and their and their rich buddies, uh, people know the people have caught on, even if they don't know exactly why or how it's happened. That that the people in charge are not favoring them, but unfortunately, they grouped all of the people on. Uh, in most cases, I, I'm I, I'm struggled at whether to call them uh, uh, activists, lefties, or or neither, or if there's a better term, there should be a better term. But just for lack of for lack of one, you know, a bunch of the bunch of hippie environmentalists, for for example, when we're talking about the environment, and say, oh, we're going to group you in with all the you know corrupt elected officials that say that we shouldn't do what you say, and sort of throw all of you out. And just to go for the lowest common denominator, people like Trump, people like, you know, voting for Brexit, all of this stuff. Um, and it's it's super dangerous because it's like, well, the sitting, you know, the powers that be, the corrupt, the, the powerful people don't want to listen to us being the environmentalists. Uh, and yet when they screw the general public over, we also get, you know, it, we get ignored again. Right. So it's either you trust them and they're telling you to, that we're wrong or you don't trust them and you still don't think we're right. <laughs> but it it just makes it makes me so insane. Um, but I mean, this is just this is population dynamics, right? It's it, person to smart people are stupid on mass. Uh, if people don't have time, and that's not they're actually stupid, just they're 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 objectively looking at their decisions. They vote against people vote against their own interests all the time. 
uh, because they're misinformed. Um, it just it shocks me that there's not more of an acknowledgement of the importance of independent journalism and the separation of corporations from journalism. Um, this has been this this is one of the motivating factors about why I've been doing this show for almost ten years. And it just it, it to, to quote what a line from one of my favorite movies. I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. I, I don't understand how nobody else notices this. Well, I, I think I think you I think what's funny about this is I think there's actually. I think saying support for independent journalism is like a catchphrase that, that everyone can get behind. You know, it's like, yes, that is a thing they should do. Uh, we should support this type of journalism. Uh, but then you get immediately into the – into like, but then there's cash flow problems. And I think the cash flow problems is the fa- most fascinating problem here uh, because of the fact that you know, as, 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 as these even larger and larger companies start, start you know, needing to find the way to save money, then you start getting into these – just completely murky areas of things, you know, like of, of like of content that sort of you know sponsored content in the middle of your magazine, uh, which is you know, oh, you wrote a po- you wrote a you wrote a piece about like, like eight ways to use Axe body spray, but just happened to be a thing. Definitely not funded by Axe body spray. Um, like, and 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 as soon as you start merging that line between what is advertising, what is journalism, um, and of course, you know, people will often say things like, oh, well, but you know, like a fashion set section and the car section uh, are already basically ads anyways. What does it matter if we make them actually ads? Uh, and, and, you know, I'm not going to – whether or not you want to believe whether or not you – know, do I want my car to be bought by an advertisement or do I want someone to actually be you know, reviewing a car? I don't know. Uh, I personally probably want you to you – know, if, if I was bought a Volkswagen in the last 10 years, I'd like to, I'd like to be reporting on cars, please. Uh, but, you know, there you go. Or like, you know, or, or, you know Using a more recent example, if I was if if I was going to buy a Galaxy X7, uh, I would not want to hear Google's uh, latent advertising for that. I would want to know it's going to blow up if I don't turn it off correctly. That's yeah. information I need to know. Whether or not it's in the technology section or not, I need that reported in a way that is reasonable. Yeah. Or or to make another uh, example, it's it's just all these cases of right problem, wrong solution. Right. And and to give another example, and I'll put the same qualifier uh, I, I, uh, on this that I did when uh, we briefly talked about uh, Israeli politics, which is if you email me about this, I will ignore you because I don't care. Um, <laughs> Uh, but when it came, uh, another example would, with journalism would be the issue of uh, Gamergate, which is there is a legitimate problem with game companies paying for game reviews. The response women suck let's hate on women and terrorize them and let's blame all women for this and make this a make this a male female thing no you were so close there's a legitimate problem with corruption in the journalism industry and there's a there's a microcosm of that in the gaming industry the solution to that is not to hate on women and terrorize them and give them death threats you idiots right yeah it's just it's so hideous but the thing is like people are so close and it's the same thing with all these politics yes the politicians are lying to you the this thing though you need to pay attention is who isn't and and instead of that, it's just a, I'm just well, I'm just going to lash out at whoever is a victim, whoever is easy to pick on, instead of actually thinking about how do I solve this problem. Well, I, I think it comes down. It, what's what's I think almost every one of these sort of major intractable problems comes down to some sort of inherent tension that exists in the world. You know, uh, so like this sort of thing between well, everyone wants. Everyone wants the populace to be informed, but everyone is busy and doesn't have time to read everything. So we try to inform them on sound bites, but then the sound bites don't accurately inform them, and so we don't have an informed populace. Uh, and so you get to the and so and it's this tension between how do you get a majority of people to read long form journalism, and you probably won't. 
Uh, although there's been some interesting studies that long-form journalism actually, as far as people willing to pay for it, that's what people want to pay for. And, and things like the Correspond, which I did check, is Dutch. Uh, so I was right about that one too. Uh, two – I would say two Rwandan moments, which are not, which are not Aleppo moments. Um, <laughs> the, uh, these, are all, these are these pieces that are – these tensions that exist all, all over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you fund a media company that does not in some way uh, you know, bring into question what, what you're writing? Uh, you know, th- is the easiest answer is public funded. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know whether or not it's through a patron count or a or a, or a subscription model like like National Observer is running, uh, or it's the CBC uh, publicly funding. At the very least, if you, if I am paying for it, I know that the, that their interest is keep me listening. Right now, of course, that can lead to sort of other things. You know, like BuzzFeed, which is trying to you know will sell me seventeen. Well, will then you know will then try to send me clickbait. But it's been proven that actually people don't really want that as much, right. uh, or at least won't pay for it. We might click it, but we won't pay for it, which is an interesting tension again there. And so there aren't these solutions exist out there that are perfect. Or like when I heard briefly that Facebook was considering charging for its use, I was like, good, because then everyone will stop using it. So <laughs> I have I have to stop. I I can stop having to use it. Right. Um, but like that's the thing, right? Is like there's not a sol- all of these pro- intractable problems, o- the only solutions come from these sort of long, drawn out, understanding the nuances of every piece, and then and then having a, and then bringing together a, a sort of a, 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 a relatively unsatisfying response. Which, if I can wrap this entire show back to the very beginning of the show. Um, it's it, that, that's partially why I'm so impressed with this deal with it for HFCs. Mm. Is because everyone isn't unhappy. Everyone is mildly happy. Which, when you when you're speaking of things which require such nuance and require such such compromise on such a wide scale, uh, if you get everyone who just isn't, you know, there's a that joke about how comp, good compromise makes everyone unhappy. Uh, like this is. This is a such a, a a monumental achievement to actually have people happy about uh, about an agreement that requires such nuance. And like in, you, you, when you talk about funding in journalism, or you're talking about trying to inform a populace, these tensions are never going to. You're never going to have a solution where you weed out and someone's going to be like, "Perfect, done." Black right. person beside you will hate it. Right. And and just to close on an actual, you know, because we we spent more time than usual commentating this week. Just to close on a on an actual news item. Really good example of this I flagged this morning. I got an email from uh, my list. Uh, today it happens to be from an environmental defense uh, blog, but it's just reporting here that, uh, uh, you know, we covered the Nestle issue a little bit. There was quite a lot of thing. Uh, Rick Mercer, who, you know, despite him being deadly wrong on that one pipeline piece mm-hmm. that we lacerated him over months ago, is generally on point, uh, went after this as well. Now the Ontario Ministry of uh, Environment and Climate Change announced a two-year mor- moratorium on all new and expanded bottled watering operations. So great, victory. Uh, um, somewhat there's and they're, they're in the article if you want to read it, I'll post it as well there's some qualifiers there it's not perfect blah 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 but here's the point the government already knew what the law was they were fine with it the only time they stopped being fine with it is when people got really angry the only reason that they got angry is because of independent journalism and organizations who push this information out not because of the Toronto Star not because of the Globe and Mail not because of the National Post because of places like us people like Mike D'Souza local ENGOs and larger ENGOs like Environmental Defense and uh, and some of these uh, other websites as well. That's the only reason we got this change. And there isn't anybody who doesn't work for Nestle who shouldn't be happy about that. Right? So just think about it. Even if you're somebody who's ca- catching this radio show on a station, you don't normally listen, you don't, you're not a fan of the show, you're tuning in. Who are these crazy hippies? That was a win, and we got that for you. You're <laughs> welcome. Time to go. Thanks so much for listening. 
You've been listening to this week's edition of The Green Majority. We're going to be back in just a minute with our bonus show where Stefan will be joining us and maybe uh, and maybe not a special guest. We'll see because I haven't asked yet. But there's somebody else here and I'm pretending they're not, but they might be on the bonus show. Find out uh, in a few minutes. Mystery. Thanks for listening to The Green Majority. Take care, everybody. Thank you for listening to our more or less what turned out to be an expose on the state of journalism this week. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. Stefan and I talk a little bit more about this in the bonus show, but we take take a little bit of a step back and sort of more talk about it from a comparative, like, what do you do to fix the problem sort of position. So uh, Stefan uh, takes it away here in just a minute. I'll just remind you, of course, that if you like what we do and you wish to support us, you can do so by signing up for membership with the Green Majority at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Green Majority. Uh, welcome to the bonus show. Uh, I am here with Darren Kester, uh and the uh, and uh, to quote to quote everyone's least favorite presidential nominee. Uh, we are going to keep you in suspense of whether or not we believe in democracy and who might have joined the show or not. Do I believe in results? That depends if I win. Yeah, that, exactly. That actually might go down in history on the on the pile of everything Trump has ever said. Oh, not as the most hideous, not mm-hmm. even close, but as the most. Faced palmiest. Well, it's un, it's 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 it, it, the fact that any single Republican is still supports him after he basically is trying to undermine your democracy, which will get you like the number of Amer- U.S. senators who are now basically going to at some are probably going to uh, Republican senators who endorse the candidate are now going to win an election he is going to claim is rigged. That is what's going to happen now. There's going to be at least 40 Republican senators – well, no, senators every six years. But every single Republican congressperson is now going to – who has now endorsed Trump is going to win an election and then he's going to say they rigged it. Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing, America? No, it's, it's amazing. He's um, – he's, yeah, he's a Molotov cocktail with a really short fuse and somebody forgot to throw it. Well, if there's <laughs> – I'm going to get you a boom. If there's if there's one thing uh, there's one thing about his presidency which I do appreciate, uh, it is the number of times his surrogates will come on and say he didn't mean that, and that he will immediately double down. Like there are times where sometimes like there's times like Mike Pence is like he will accept the election. Two hours later, he tweets, "I will not accept the election." It's like, what are we doing? Well, it's partially because he's. I mean, his report, his his supporters have been interviewed, and they actually just don't care. Like oh, yeah. they've been confronted with that, and they're like, "Yeah, I don't care. I support him anyway." And anyway, we're not going to talk about that we've, anymore. Anymore, we've, 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 we'll, that's our Trump talk for the day. We're we're, ca- we're at our uh, at our cap. Yeah, for the for the week. So, yeah, Stefan, exactly. you had another. Uh, you had an interesting idea about uh, journalism. It's, it's, as well. it's not so much an idea. It's a. It's a. It's a. Inter- so, I have a. I have a friend who does research in. Uh, in tr- like, in like the kind of research which is like like a, he's a he's an investigative researcher, which I, which is not often you hear that as as a actually journalist, but he doesn't actually he doesn't he does a bit of journalism, but his main job is a researcher. So much so that like you know if I need to know like if like so he's been actually doing some work with Grassy Narrows, so like they basically need some information and they go to him and he has to like figure out you know who worked for this thing at this time um, and then he has to try to figure it out and and, and he's a it's a fantastic and fascinating world of, of it's like you're kind of like you're kind of like a detective uh, but but for like particular but for these sort of different social social issues um, but he was explaining to me the difference ma- the makeup between how the how Canada and United States uh, how foundations can fund things and how much that impacts uh, the media landscape in Canada versus the United States. And so the United States, there's a percentage of these foundations 
which can which which which, which you can support and which give out money, uh, which you, which I, I believe gives you out like a charitable receipt. Um, that their entire work is to do investigative research. So they have a ton of money. They use that money to do investigative research, and then they just what what they learn they then then just sell or give uh, to journalists to them write the story. They're like, we found out this ridiculous thing. Here's all the information. Here, New York Times, go write a story about this. Or we've done all this. Here's all the information. You go, you know, you take this 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 story. And so what they're and so it, the, the power of that, the amount of money that exists now, which is trying to get to the truth. That's all they do. They don't. They, they're not. They're not out. To, they don't editorialize because they don't write these pieces. They just find out information and give it out. And and it's a and because of the fact that these foundations can exist in a way that they actually are well funded, this is actually a mass a main source of news uh, of information that gets into the public stream comes from these foundation work uh, and, and this work, work. But the problem is, Canada doesn't have these. Canada can't have these uh, specifically because of the way our our, our charity law works. Is that you can you cannot be you know the, the, our charity laws are ridiculous. Uh, like I, I, I won't go too long into this, but the there's the, the most ridiculous, the best example of why our charity law is ridiculous uh, is the fact that you can't you can't solve poverty. You can only alleviate poverty. So if your charity actually is meant to solve poverty, like get, get people to like no longer be poor, rather than just like feed the poor, you don't count as a charity in Canada. Uh, uh, what are we do? like? It, 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 you know, it comes down from like a very antiquated system, and we have a very, very strict understanding of, of of the way it works. But like, these are the kind of things that like, if you understand why some of the problems that we that we face in uh, in in Canadian journalism comes from the fact that we don't have these 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 places that are just out to get information, um, and, and in part that's because of the, our laws don't make it easy to fund them. And so we've we've created a system where it's very 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 difficult, as we've learned, uh, to get funding as a non-profit or even as any as a, as a as a as a journalist feature that isn't that isn't going to try to sell ads. Like if you if you're not going to sell ads, trying to get make money as a journalist in in Canada is incredibly difficult because uh, there just really isn't any other avenues of, of any other ways to to make money. Uh, and so, you know, and so talking about sort of like, you know, this, this, you know, Canada land has proven that Patreon, uh, can be at least in mildly effective, but you know, they're not going to you can't run a full news TV show station out of that. You, you know, you, that you can do what they're doing and well, they're doing a great in, job. But in not, most cases there, is, there is one who's made it work, but they are, they are the exception, which is the young Turks. Right. But, but, you, but, they, but they're not in Canada. They don't have, you know, they, right. they have a much, much wider set right. of people. You know, we only have 30 million people to deal with here. It's, remember like, yes, yes, we could be a Canadian show that gets other foreign funding, but then, you know, then then you get the demon. There's foreign funding. Unlike, Other people, unlike pay the them. oil companies and anything. Else. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway. uh, but anyway, so like, that's the thing. That, that's the, the, that's where we stand right now. Is that it's very very difficult uh, to make money with journalism in Canada right now. Uh, and there's a and so far there's not really been a a, a great solution to that problem right and well thank you for that excellent setup stefan because this allows me to pull out one of my three favorite soapboxes ah fun uh which is uh uh blending uh, uh capitalism with socialism essentially <laughs> a blend of the two uh this is it applies so i've proposed this repeatedly and i will keep proposing it because i have a very simple rule because a lot of time when you propose this stuff there's two objections to sort of uh stru- deep structural change uh there's there's two oppositions to it one is it won't work uh, and the other one wa- is, uh, okay, it might work, but you c- there's no way to get from, from where we are to there, right? So, well, how do you expect to do that? Um, the first one, it won't work. Well, that's easily refutable because we have 
you know, micro cases either from other countries or cases where we've done things on a small scale and it totally worked, or we've done it on a large scale, but in a very limited thing. So we have lots and lots of examples of these types of things working. Every time we do something like it, it works. And when we do the opposite, it, it produces negative results. Um, so there's a very easy metric for how you should do this. You go through society and you say, does, and we can talk about this at a global level, or, but we can talk, or we can talk about this at a Canadian level. I think it's better to apply it to global level, but let's use Canada for an example in the middle. Things that we require to have a society that represents our values and a society we want to live in. Publicly funded healthcare so that people, we don't have people dying in the streets, right? Not every procedure, but enough to keep our population healthy and functional. That is good for every Canadian to have that. Uh, it is good for a democracy to have public financing of elections because it, un, uh, and this is a, an area where Canada is much better, not perfect, but significantly better than the Americans, which is that they have a carte blanche. Uh, he who has the biggest microphone or she who has the biggest microphone gets essentially the most power in the U.S. And it's basically legalized bribery right now is where the, where the current laws stay. But this is another value. If you want independent, unbiased things, if you want the government to respond to the people, if that's what we're saying, the society we want. Then we publicly finance elections and we prevent uh, uh, government employees from taking contracts with companies that they had any relation to, you know, sector wide relation to uh, after the fact. So another case for that is, well, we need to have. So, okay, so we need to have people fed. We need to have them housed. So I make this as an argument for a minimum income. I make this for expanding the access to, to medical care and what's covered. We basically have to we're going to vastly increase the social safety net in a very smart way where we just say it is unacceptable and un-Canadian, no Canadian shall be without these things. Fair elections, access to health care, you know, the rights and access to a legal system that protects their rights, all of these things. I would include in that as a requirement of a functional country and a country that represents values. And the only way to have all of those other things is an independent and fair media. Uh, and I think that that uh, lays the case for some form of public funding there too. Now, I think that unlike some of those other things, I would actually be fine with some conversation about a mix of public and private financing. My preference would be a something for like, uh, you know, if you, you have to do it on your own. So like what we're doing, right? We can, we can call ourselves journalists, even though we both you and I admittedly say that with a bit of a hand wave um, and that we're sort of a the air sub, quotes. The, well, it's, air not that quotes. We're, it's not that we're not journalists, it's that we're a subcategory of journalists called commentators. Mm. Um, but, you know, technically we're journalists. Um, and say, okay, go do it on your own. If you want to, so anyone can be a journalist, go and do a show. If you get enough, like the same way we do with the money for elections, right? If you get a certain amount of votes, you get a certain amount of money from the government. Great. You can get a certain amount of subscribers who will pay you $2 or whatever a month, or we make some sort of minimum. If you get X amount of those people to do that, the government will then, you'll now apply for this fund that supports public journal, public financing of journalism. And if you can raise 20 grand of your own money, the government will now subsidize you 20 grand and, and, and pay for half. Once you hit that threshold, that would be an amazing system. Them, right. So we can have a little bit of a, a mix there. Uh, my preference would be to keep corporations and private interests out of it entirely. But, but we can have a conversation about that. Right. But having a way so that people like what we are doing, uh, but even if it, we don't include that, because maybe we can't get to that threshold. Right. Fine. We'll keep doing it as a volunteer show. I'm going to keep doing this, even if the only person listening to me is Stefan. <laughs> uh, so that's not this isn't about us. But as far as like Mike D'Souza on National Observer. Right. If you're providing a service and, and there's some thing for that. And this this service benefits our democ democracy. It, it, it isn't just a luxury product, right? If you All the things that should be in the, a purely capitalist system should all be things that you can do without. We cannot do without uh, uncorrupt governments. We cannot do without some modicum of a social safety net. And we cannot do without independent and uh, uncorrupt journalists. We just can't. So I don't think there's a way to prevent un, you know, biased journalism. I do think there's a way to promote unbiased journalism. And I think that we're not doing that. Uh, I was going to say that I, 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 this is a... I, 
I need to run, so this is the this is my last comment of the of, of of the of the show, uh, and it will be sort of a, I'm going to like say something and then run away, which could have, we could inspire another like that's 15 my conversation. Well, too bad I'm doing it anyways. Uh, which is that what's funny about that 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 concept is it 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 speaks directly to something I've mentioned before on the show, which is the which is the who do you trust part of uh, part of uh, part of the conversation, right? Like the idea. I'm sure there's so many people like libertarians hear the idea of the government giving you know paying for half journalists salaries and we're like well how like are like up and the idea that like well then then they'd be biased towards the government you can't trust the government to do that what if they only gave the money to the, the people who were pro them that you couldn't be pro and to the government how are you gonna do those other things and i think that's common uh there's just like there's such a large scope of every single idea will have sort of these sort of back and forth like difficulties uh, that I think in the end the which is why it leads us to the other thing I said earlier which is that if there's one thing everyone says and everyone can say and then walk away from it which is just we need to support independent journalism period right well, and a lot of people, what a lot of people might say is like, oh, so you'd be fine with uh, the government giving Rebel Media and Ezra Levant and other complete hack non-journalists uh, like that money. But yes, but here's the thing. Uh, if we create this bar where, okay, you know, they're all going to get the same amount of money, Ezra's money would actually go down because almost all of his money comes from financing people they don't come from individuals the people who pay for a lot of his show are he gets money from the oil industry he makes all this money elsewhere right he's essentially running a propaganda network so if we agreed okay the only is the same way we're talking about public financing and excellence which was you have to do it on individual donations and there's a cap on how much each individual can give so you actually need to raise twenty thousand dollars through ten thousand people to be able to qualify for this subsidy um first of all he wouldn't be able to meet that target but second of all even if he did and that excluded all of his private money and you actually put with the same access to resources, uh, Rebel Media and National Observer, head to head, just those two. I give you a year before Rebel collapses. I give you a year because if those two people actually had the same access to resources, the the obvious nonsense of people like Ezra Levant would be exposed when you're able to compare it to real journalism. And any uh, any person who isn't walking into that with their mind already made up would easily be able to tell i would say go ahead and give them the money take away all his corporate money but go ahead give them the money because as soon as they're on a level playing field where people can compare them side by side it's no question game's over he's done right so i i fear that not i say bring it on fair enough i I'm, i shouldn't be here i said i had to go all right that'll be it for this week thanks so much for listening green majority bonus show we'll see you all real soon